Hello, welcome back. Um, I'm not really in the mood for this. I don't know about you, but, um, you know, perhaps it's what I should do. Perhaps it's what I should be doing. It's Saturday afternoon. Um, the sky is sort of blue with a few clouds in it. There's um, a few nice trees and things outside, which um, are nice and green. The church looks pleasant. It all should be perfect and going swimmingly, but uh, can't help feeling there are weird things abroad in the world um, that I don't even want to think about. So why don't we kick straight off with chapter six. I was the flail of the Lord. Oh, it's going a bit religious now. Lord John Roxton and I turned down Vigo Street together and through the dingy portals of the famous aristocratic rookery. At the end of a long drab passage, my new acquaintance pushed open a door and turned on an electric switch. A number of lamps, shining through tinted shades, bathed the whole great room before us in a ruddy radiance. Standing in the doorway and glancing round me, I had a general impression of extraordinary comfort and elegance combined with an atmosphere of masculine virility. I've been to places like that. Everywhere there were mingled the luxury of the wealthy man of taste and the careless untidiness of the bachelor. You know, I found myself sitting down on a 15-inch meat feast um, with a stuffed crust. Rich furs and strange iridescent mats from some oriental bazaar were scattered upon the floor. Pictures and prints which even my unpractised eyes could recognise as being of great price and rarity hung thick upon the walls. Sketches of boxers, of ballet girls, and of racehorses, well, make your mind up, alternated with a sensuous fragonard, a martial girardet, and a dreamy Turner. Tina or Ike, I wonder. On the, um, Bang and Olufsen. But amid these varied ornaments there were scattered the trophies which brought back strongly to my recollection the fact that Lord John Roxton was one of the great all-round sportsmen and athletes of his day. Can he outrun a pterodactyl? Tyrannodactyl. A dark blue oar crossed with a cherry-pink one above his mantelpiece spoke of the old Oxonian and Leander man while the foils and boxing gloves above and below them were the tools of a man who had won supremacy with each. Like a dado round the room was the jutting line of splendid heavy game heads, the best of their sort from every quarter of the world, with the rare white rhinoceros of the Lardo enclave drooping its supercilious lip above them all. Well, not so supercilious now, I suggest. Um, you know, before he had the, uh, you know, the magnum Clint Eastwood go on rhino make my day treatment from a big brave white hunter with a massive bit of artillery. 
In the centre of the rich red carpet was a black and gold Louis XV table, a lovely antique, now sacrilegiously desecrated, with marks of glasses and the scars of cigar stumps. So he's got a bob or two, this man, hasn't he? He can, uh, he can afford to leave a few um, coffee rings on his, um, on his Louis Cannes um, occasional table. Perhaps it's a nest. That would be nice, wouldn't it? With, the, you know, a few crumbs from his fig rolls or Garibaldi's. On it stood a silver tray of smokables, smokables, yes, and a burnished spirit stand from which, and an adjacent siphon, my silent host proceeded to charge two high glasses. See, we don't trust ourselves to, uh, to syntax like that anymore, do we? On it stood a silver tray, a, fil a silver tray of smokables. Snackables, smokables, and a burnished spirit stand, from which and an adjacent siphon, my silent host proceeded to charge two high glasses. Having indicated an armchair to me, and placed my refreshment near it, he handed me a long, smooth Havana. Then, seating himself opposite to me, he looked at me long and fixedly with his strange twinkling. Reckless eyes, eyes of a cold, light blue, the colour of a glacier lake, or conceivably a glacier lake. Through the thin haze of my cigar smoke, I noticed the details of a face which was already familiar to me from many photographs. The strongly curved nose, the hollow, worn cheeks. Never sure about hollow cheeks. Always sound like they're defying standard physiognomy rules. Worn cheeks, the dark, ruddy hair. Ooh, look at that ruddy hair. Thin at the top, the crisp, virile moustaches. We tend to say moustache singular now, but I suppose each wing of the moustache, you know, formed two moustaches. I don't know, unless he had some hair going on elsewhere that we're counting the small aggressive tuft upon his projecting chin. The small aggressive tuft upon his icy. Something there was of Napoleon III, something of Don Quixote, or Don Quixote, as we used to say. See previous notes. And yet again, something which was the essence of the English country gentleman, the keen, alert, open-air lover of dogs and of horses, I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't uh, shout that about when the constabulary are around. His skin was of a rich flower-pot red, how attractive, from sun and wind. His eyebrows were tufted and overhanging, which gave those naturally cold eyes an almost ferocious aspect, an impression which was increased by his strong and furrowed brow. In figure he was spare, but very strongly built indeed. He had often proved that there were few men in England capable of such sustained exertions. What, in the open-air lover of dogs and horses department? His height was a little over six feet, but he seemed shorter on account of a peculiar rounding of the shoulders. Oh dear, and we all suffer from that from time to time.
Yoga, my dear. Such was the famous John, Lord Roxton, or Lord John Roxton, as he sat opposite me on his Pilates ball, bouncing slightly, to the rhythm of the Tina Turner on the Bang and Olufsen, biting hard upon his cigar, was it his cigar, and watching me steadily in a long and embarrassing silence. Well, I can certainly provide that here. Well, said he at last, we've gone and done it, young fellow me lad. This curious phrase he pronounced as if it were all one word, young fellow me lad. Oh, I did it, I did that. Already, without being told. Yes, we've taken a jump, you and me, I suppose now, when you went into that room. There was no such notion in your head, what? No thought of it. The same here, no thought of it. And here we are, up to our necks in the tureen. The soup tureen, the big pot of soup. Very nice, a tureen. I've a cutler. Why, I've only been back three weeks from Uganda, and taken a place in Scotland, and signed the lease and all. Pretty goings on, what? How does it hit you? Well, it is all in the main line of my business. I'm a journalist on the Gazette. Of course, you said so when you took it on. And by the way, I've got a small job for you, if you'll help me. With pleasure. Don't mind taking a risk, do you? What is the risk? Well, it's Ballinger. He's the risk. You've heard of him? No. Why, young fellow, where have you lived? Sir John Ballinger is the best gentleman jock in the North Country. I could hold him on the flat at my best. But over jumps, he's my master. Well, it's an open secret that when he's out of training, he drinks hard. Striking an average, he calls it. He got delirium on Tuesday, and has been raging like a devil ever since. His room is above this. The doctors say that it is all up with the old dear unless some food is got into him. But as he lies in bed with a revolver in his coverlet, and swears he will put six of the best through anyone that comes near him, there's been a bit of a strike among the serving men. He's a hard nail, is Jack, and a dead shot too, but you can't leave a grand national winner to die like that. What? What do you mean to do, then? I asked. Well, my idea was that you and I could rush him. He may be dozing. And at the worst, he can only wing one of us, and the other should have him. If we can get his bolster cover round his arms, and then phone up a stomach pump, we'll give the we'll give the old dear the supper of his life. Mm. Yes. It was a rather desperate business to come suddenly into one's day's work. I don't think that I am a particularly brave man. I have an Irish imagination which makes the unknown and the untried more terrible than they are. On the other hand, I was brought up with the horror of cowardice, and with a terror of such a stigma. Luckily, I've not been burdened with that inheritance. Well, I don't think I have. I say that. Maybe I've fashioned my own particular brand of cowardice. I dare say that I could throw myself over a precipice, like the Hun in the history books, if my courage to do it were questioned. Now then, when did the Hun throw themselves over a precipice? I don't know. Were they like lemmings? Um, Honey-coloured lemmings, the Hun. And yet it would surely be pride and fear rather than courage, which would be my inspiration. Therefore, although every nerve in my body shrank from the whisky-maddened figure which I pictured in the room above, 
I still answered, in as careless a voice as I could command, that I was ready to go. Some further remark of Lord Roxton's about the danger only made me irritable. Talking won't make it any better, said I. Come on. I rose from my chair and he from his. Then, with a little confidential chuckle of laughter, he patted me two or three times on the chest, finally pushing me back into my chair. All right, sonny, my lad, you'll do, said he. I looked up in surprise. Excuse me, a little bit of a click in my throat. That's not nice to hear, is it? I saw after Jack Ballinger myself this morning. He blew a hole in the skirt of my kimono. Yes, can happen. Bless his shaky old hand, but we got a jacket on him, and he's to be all right in a week. I say, young fellow, I hope you don't mind. What? You see, between you and me, close-tiled, I look on this South American business as a mighty serious thing, and if I have a pal with me, I want a man I can bank on. So I sized you down, and I'm bound to say that you came well out of it. You see, it's all up to you and me, for this old Summerlee man will want dry nursing from the first. By the way, are you by any chance the Malone who is expected to get his rugby cap for Ireland? A reserve, perhaps. I thought I remembered your face. Why, I was there when you got that try against Richmond. As fine a swerving run as I saw the whole season. I never miss a rugby match, if I can help it, for it is the manliest game we have left. Ah, yes, all those manlier games which have gone by the board. Um, yes. Wrestling with them. I don't know. Big wild boar, dressed in trunks, and a catering tub of Nivea. That was a good manly sport. Well, I didn't ask you in here just to talk sport. We've got to fix our business. Here are the sailings on the first page of the Times. There's a booth boat for Para next Wednesday week. A booth boat for Para. Paraguay, do you think? A booth boat. And if the professor and you can work it, I think we should take it. What? Very good. I'll fix it with him. What about your outfit? Well, I was thinking of a sequined glitter disco suit. Possibly a onesie. My paper will see to that. I mean, my paper will see to that. Can you shoot? About average territorial standard? Good Lord, as bad as that. It's the last thing you young fellows think of learning. You're all bees without stings, so far as looking after the hive goes. You'll look silly some of these days when someone comes along and sneaks the honey. Oh, well, we were talking about honey earlier, the hun. But you'll need to hold your gun straight in South America, for unless our friend the professor is a madman or a liar, we may see some queer things before we get back. What gun have you? He crossed to an oaken cupboard, and as he threw it open I caught a glimpse of glistening rows of parallel barrels, like the pipes of an organ. In fact, it was the pipes of an organ, which he proceeded to play. No, he didn't. I'll see what I can spare you out of my own battery, said he. One by one, he took out a succession of beautiful rifles, opening and shutting them with a snap and a clang and then patting them as he put them back into the rack, as tenderly as a mother would fondle her children. This is Bland's .577 Axite Express. Or it might be that he said Bland's 577 Axite Express. I remember going deeply into 
how to say the different bores of rifles, but I can't remember. A 45 is a 45, so maybe it's a Bland's 577 Axite Express, or maybe it's a Bland's Point 577 Axite Express. Comments welcome, said he. I got that big fellow with it. I got that big fellow with it. What sort of sellotape? Buy one, get one free. Uh, yeah, with every Bland's uh, 577 Axite Express, you get uh, a native tracker, sellotape, to the barrel. Would you be interested, sir? Well, yes, I would. He glanced up at the white rhinoceros. Ah, the supercilious white rhinoceros. I wonder if rhinoceros suggested supercilious in a sort of sound, sound similarity way. Ten more yards, and he would have added me to his collection. Ah, so it was a fair competition, wasn't it? On, on that conical bullet, his one chance hangs. Tis the weak one's advantage fair. Don't know what he's saying there. Sounds interesting, though. I can't be bothered. It's too difficult. Hope you know your Gordon, for he's the poet of the horse and the gun and the man that handles both. Now, here's a useful tool. 0.470, telescopic sight, double ejector, point blank, up to 350. Ah, uh, yes, let's review and dissect that, shall we? Here's a useful tool. Yes, it's a gun. It's a 0.470, 0.470. 470. Telescopic sight, double ejector, point blank up to 350. Um, that's the rifle I used against the Peruvian slave drivers three years ago. I was the flail of the Lord up in those parts. Not sure about this voice for him, really. It's like all my voices, they all, they all dilute and dissolve down into the same sort of I was the flail of the Lord up in those parts, I may tell you. No, you won't find it in any blue book. There are times, young fellow, when every one of us must make a stand for human right and justice, or you never feel clean again. There are times, young fellow, when every one of us... 541 highlighters. There are times, young fellow, when every one of us makes, must make a stand for human right and justice and possibly literacy, or you never feel clean again. That's why I made a little war on my own. Declared it myself, waged it myself, ended it myself. Nice. Each of those nicks is for a slave murderer. A good row of them, what? That big one is for Pedro Lopez, the king of them all, that I killed in a backwater of the Putameo River. Now here's something that would do for you. He took out a beautiful brown and silver rifle. Well rubbered at the stock. I had a horrible feeling he was going to say that. Sharply sighted, five cartridges to the clip. You can trust your life to that. He handed it to me and closed the door of his oak cabinet. Of course he did. That's his oak cabinet. Uh, could do the, a dab of um, a dab of putameo lard on there, couldn't it? By the way, he continued, coming back to his chair. What do you know of this Professor Challenger? I never saw him till today. Well, neither did I. It's funny we should both sail under sealed orders from a man we don't know. I nearly said that efficiently, but not quite. It's funny we should it's funny we should both sail under sealed orders for a man we don't know. From a man we don't know. Fourth time lucky. It's funny we should both sail under sealed orders from a man we don't know. He seemed an uppish old bird. His brothers of science don't seem too fond of him either. 
how came you to take an interest in the affair? I told him shortly my experiences of the morning, and he listened intently. Then he drew out a map of South America and laid it on the table. I believe every single word he said to you was the truth, said he earnestly. And mind you, I have something to go on when I speak like that. South America is a place I love, and I think if you take it right through from Darien to Fuego, ah, the Darien Gap, that's a very interesting place, isn't it? It's the grandest, richest, most wonderful bit of earth upon this planet. People don't know it yet and don't realise what it may become. I've been up and down it from end to end and had two dry seasons in those very parts. As I told you when I spoke of the war I made on the slave dealers, well, when I was up there I heard some yarns of the same kind, traditions of Indians and the like, but but with something behind them, no doubt. The more you knew of that country, young fellow, the more you would understand that anything is possible, anything. There are just some narrow water lanes along which folk travel, no idea what I'm saying, and outside that is all darkness. Now down here in the Mato Grande, Mato Grande, he swept his cigar over a part of the map. Or up in this corner where three countries meet, nothing would surprise me, nothing. As that chap said tonight, there are 50,000 miles of waterway running through a forest that is very near the size of Europe. You and I could be as far away from each other as Scotland is from Constantinople, and yet each of us be in the same great Brazilian forest. That's a big forest. Man has just made a track here and a scrape there in the maze. Very nice. Man has just made a track here and a scrape there in the maze. Why, the river rises and falls the best part of forty feet, and half the country is a morass that you can't pass over. Why shouldn't something new and wonderful lie in such a country? And why shouldn't we be the men to find it out? Besides, he added, his queer gaunt face shining with delight, there's a sporting risk in every mile of it. I'm like an old golf ball. I've had all the white paint knocked off me long ago. Life can whack me about now, and it can leave a mark. But a sporting risk, young fellow, that's the salt of existence, indeed. Then it's worth living again. We're all getting a deal too soft and dull and comfy. Tell me about it. Give me the great wastelands and the wide open spaces with a gun in my fist and something to look for that's worth finding and possibly a mini pork pie in a little Tupperware which seals itself really hermetically so that the nasty soldier ants can't get in because I love a mini pork pie after I've shot a load of slave drivers in Peru. Especially that... Guavo Sanchez, or whatever his name was. I've tried war and steeplechasing and aeroplanes, but this hunting of beasts that look like a lobster supper dream <laughs> is a brand new sensation. He chuckled with glee at the prospect. Perhaps I have dwelt too long upon this new acquaintance, but he is to be my comrade for many a day, and so I have tried to set him down as I first saw him with his quaint personality and his queer little tricks of speech and of thought. Well, his queer little tricks of speech, he basically knocks G's off the end of um, I-N-G words. Um, it was only the need of getting in the account of my meeting which drew me at last from his company. I left him seated amid his pink radiance, oiling the lock of his favourite rifle, while he still 
chuckled to himself at the thought of the adventures which awaited us. It was very clear to me that if dangers lay before us, I could not in all England have found a cooler head or a braver spirit with which to share them. That night, wearied as I was after the wonderful happenings of the day, I sat late with McArdle, the news editor, explaining to him the whole situation, which he thought important enough to bring next morning before the notice of Sir George Beaumont, the chief. It was agreed that I should write home full accounts of my adventures in the shape of successive letters to McArdle, and that these should either be edited for the Gazette as they arrived, or held back to be published later, according to the wishes of Professor Challenger, since we could not yet know what conditions he might attach to those directions which should guide us to the unknown land. In response to a telephone inquiry, we received nothing more definite than a fulmination against the press, ending up with the remark that if we would notify our boat, he would hand us any directions which he might think it proper to give us at the moment of starting. A second question from us failed to elicit any answer at all, save a plaintive bleat from his wife, to the effect that her husband was in a very violent temper already and that she hoped we would do nothing to make it worse. A third attempt later in the day provoked a terrific crash and a subsequent message from the Central Exchange that Professor Challenger's receiver had been shattered. After that we abandoned all attempt at communication. And now, my patient readers, I can address you directly no longer. From now onwards, if indeed any continuation of this narrative should ever reach you, it can only be through the paper which I represent. In the hands of the editor I leave this account of the events which have led up to one of the most remarkable expeditions of all time, so that if I never return to England there shall be some record as to how the affair came about. I'm writing these last lines in the saloon of the booth liner Francisca, and they will go back by the pilot to the keeping of Mr. McArdle. Let me draw one last picture before I close the notebook, a picture which is the last memory of the old country which I bear away with me. It is a wet, foggy morning in the late spring. A thin, Cold rain is falling. Three shining Mackintoshed figures are walking down the quay, making for the gangplank of the great liner from which the Blue Peter is flying. In front of them, a porter pushes a trolley piled high with trunks, wraps, and gun cases. What's in those wraps, I wonder? A little bit of guacamole and chicken? Professor Summerley, a long, melancholy figure, walks with dragging steps and drooping head, as one who is already profoundly sorry for himself. Lord, Lord John Roxton steps briskly and his thin, eager face beams forth between his hunting cap and his muffler. As for myself, I am glad to have got the bustling days of preparation and the pangs of leave-taking behind me, and I have no doubt that I show it in my bearing. Suddenly, just as we reach the vessel, there is a shout behind us. It is Professor Challenger, who had promised to see us off. He runs after us, 
a puffing, red-faced, irascible figure. No, thank you, says he. There's a big, loud dog barking now. All sorts of off-stage noises. No, thank you, says he. I should much prefer not to go aboard. I have only a few words to say to you, and they can very well be said where we are. I beg you not to imagine that I am in any way indebted to you for making this journey. I would have you to understand that it is a matter of perfect indifference to me, and I refuse to entertain the most remote of personal obligation. Truth is truth, and nothing which you can report can affect it in any way, though it may excite the emotions and allay the curiosity of a number of very ineffectual people. My directions for your instruction and guidance are in this sealed envelope. You will open it when you reach a town upon the Amazon which is called Manaus, but not until the date and hour which is marked upon the outside. Have I made myself clear? I leave the strict observance of my conditions entirely to your honour. No, Mr. Malone, I will place no restriction upon your correspondence, since the ventilation of the facts is the object of your journey, but I demand that you shall give no particulars as to your exact destination and that nothing be actually published until your return. Goodbye, sir. You have done something to mitigate my feelings for the loathsome profession to which you unhappily belong. Goodbye, Lord John. Science is, as I understand, a sealed book to you. But you may congratulate yourself upon the hunting field which awaits you. You will no doubt have the opportunity of describing in the field how you brought down the rocketing dimorphodon. And goodbye to you also, Professor Summerlee. I've got bad feelings about Professor Summerlee, you know, but uh, maybe he'll pull through. Maybe he's more plucky than we imagine. If you are still capable of self-improvement, of which I am frankly unconvinced, you will surely return to London a wiser man. Bit of a backhanded uh, one there. So he turned upon his heel, and a minute later from the deck I could see his short, squat figure bobbing about in the distance, as he made his way back to his train. Well, we are well down the channel now. There's the last bell for letters, and it's goodbye to the pilot. We'll be down, hull down, on the old trail from now on. God bless all we leave behind us, and send us safely back. I suppose, um, yeah, well, that's um, the end of chapter six and um, chapter seven awaits us. I've just eased this in. Um, yeah, it sort of cheered me up a little bit. Um, yeah, the story moves on apace and from now on, these narratives supposedly become sort of extracts from the newspaper reports that he sends back to McArdle. So that's all well and good. So maybe they become a little bit more journalistic in tone, perhaps, I don't know, and uh, so that would be good. What else can we deduce? Yes, it's been hard to drag myself back into the lost world. I think those people who have suggested that I might be a little bit, um, my heart might not totally be in it. They may well be right, but I do remember reading it as a, I don't know, a teenager maybe, um, and enjoying it. And uh, so... You know, maybe that teenage enjoyment, maybe it's fled. Um, and why wouldn't it? It is a few years ago. Um, only 10, obviously. But uh, yeah, um, it's a nice day out there-ish. Um, things are opening up gradually. But all this, I'll tell you what's getting me down. All this talk of mandatory mask wearing. 
I don't know if it gets any of you down. Do comment below if you have a contrary or a supporting view. But I, you know, I can't help feeling from my limited um, inspection of the field of play, re-wearing of masks, that, um, you know, there's no solid evidence for or against. And while there's no terribly solid evidence for, I'd rather not, because I think we're all going to be breathing our own um, effluvia. We're all going to be unavoidably um, sneezing and coughing into a bit of cloth, which we then re-ingest. Doesn't sound good to me. Plus the matter of oxygen and CO2 doesn't make any sense to me. So therefore it must be PR. And therefore it must be either to lure the the COVID bedwetters, as some people call them, back out into shops and stores and things because the economy has gone to hell in a handbag due to a grotesque overreaction or underestimation or whatever it was. Um, but they certainly don't seem to have any clinical efficacy um, as far as I can work out. Do comment if you think um, any different to that. Indeed, some of the uh, players in this whole farrago were saying early doors in March and April, that, oh, yes, don't worry about uh, masks, they don't really work. And now they're saying, as it's all sort of started to disappear from many countries, um, that, oh, yeah, you should do because, you know, it's really important. It doesn't make any sense. The whole kit and caboodle doesn't seem to make any sense to even, even a person of my limited mental capacities. So I leave you with that. And uh, sorry, it's not more cheerful, but um, it's no point pretending. When, when we ain't cheerful, we ain't cheerful. That doesn't mean we can't raise a little smile from time to time. But sometimes you just have to let it all out, baby. And um, that's it. I will try and do another chapter seven fairly soon. Um, but I hope you were able to extract a little moment's levity from what is otherwise a rather a gloomy take on the current situation and um you know why have why have we why have we destroyed the economies of you know many countries in the western world in inverted commas um over this i i just don't get it i don't get it call me um call me a depressive but um it seems to have been a grotesque overreaction. Discuss. Cheers, guys. Bye.